Welcome to the, the Bible course. We are going to talk about the tree of life today. So this is our fourth session. The first one was on the Sea of Chaos. And then we talked about the river of life. And last time we were talking about the image of the garden in the Bible. And so this is the second, second symbol under the heading of garden. The idea of the tree of life is so significant. I thought we'd talk about it, um, spend a whole week talking about it. So we're, we're going to do that right now. The tree of life appears first in Genesis 2, but there's a Genesis 1 background to it. Let me find the spot in my notes here. So just to, just to review, Genesis 1, God starts with an, an unformed creation that is pictured in the first couple of verses of Genesis 1 as a, it's kind of a dual image of this wasteland, un, unformed wasteland and dark chaotic water. So out of that water, God makes, uh, he, he separates the water vertically and horizontally and then makes land come up. And at the top of that cosmic mountain uh, is a garden. And on day, I forget what day it is, but he makes plants and then makes people and puts them in the midst of all these plants and gives them all, all the trees to eat for food. Uh, so there's the background of this. The, that's the context for the tree of life, which we're going to learn a, a lot more about in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, we are introduced to the tree of life by name. I'm going to focus on a couple verses that mention the tree of life and I'll just read them out loud. And then we're going to brainstorm the characteristics of, of this, this mysterious tree. And then the rest of today's conversation, we will be looking for those characteristics as they appear throughout the Bible. And then we'll, we'll try to make some sense out of this. So in Genesis two, nine, it says, and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up, every tree that is pleasant for, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then jumping ahead to 2.16, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Surely you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So my, the next thing I want to quote is from... The tree of life appears again in Genesis 3. So between Genesis 2 and 3, we have had the fall. So they, even though they were forbidden from eating from the other tree in the center of the garden, the serpent comes and tempts them, tempts them to do that. And then in Genesis 3.22, it says, the Lord, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Here it is down there. Knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So I know that's 
we're jumping straight in to, to scripture, but let's just sit here for a little bit and notice a couple of things. What, what are the characteristics of the tree of life? What details have we been given that may become significant later on? You live, you live forever if you eat of it. You live forever if you eat of it. Yes, that's it, it. The fruit somehow has mysterious effects contrasted with this other tree that if you eat of it, you will surely die. So this fruit has life extending properties. Uh, It kind of implies that humans don't have eternal life inside them as a, as a component of what we are uh, of our essence, unlike God. So there's a dependency. We have to access something outside of ourselves in this story uh, the image is of the eat it by eating the fruit of this certain tree. What else? What else do you notice about this tree? Go back to Genesis two. It's right at the center of things. Yeah, it is. It is at the center of things. Mm hmm. In verse 2-9, uh, it says the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, in the center of the garden. Mm-hmm. So going back to our Eden geography and topography, we have Eden, which is a, a larger area, a s- smaller subset of which is the garden. And if you zoom in further, at the center of the garden is the tree of life. What else do you notice? doesn't seem to be off limits like the way the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is yeah it doesn't seem to be off limits Mm -hmm. in fact god says you may surely eat of every tree in the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil don't eat so that that would seem to include the tree of life some commentators have um concluded then that the fruit of the tree of life, eating of the fruit of the tree of life was to be a continuous, uh, continuous thing that gave life. It wasn't like a one, if they ate it one time, they would suddenly become immortal beings, but that in returning to the tree of life and consistently feeding on its fruit, eternal life was to be had continuously. And then once it's cut off, then something changes. Once they're exiled from the garden. What else do you notice? There's a lot here. I've got 10 things that I'm waiting for you to say. So don't be shy. It seems like it's nearby the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That does. Yep. Yep. In the midst of the garden, the, the line is the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's kind of weird phrasing. Sorry. Yeah, it's unexpected phrasing. You might expect it to say the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were in the midst of the garden. We might. So this is where this is where the when you find something unexpected, you sit with it and you assume that the that it's not an error, uh, but that 
there, there's meaning even even in even in the odd phrasing like this. Perhaps this means that the tree of life is is the center of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is at the center, but it isn't the center. Perhaps one might just start considering things like that. What, what is this? What is, what is the significance of this distinction? The tree of life is given the label. It is in the middle of the garden and the tree of the other tree is also there. Did someone else want to say something a minute ago? Well, it's just said that it was pleasant to sight and good for food. Like it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Mm-hmm. So there was something that's in two nine out of the ground. The Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant for the sight and good for food. So all of these trees are beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's part of the temptation about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is, it's desirable. It's beautiful. There's certainly not, there's no notion connected to the tree of life that it's, it's a fearful thing necessarily at this point in the story. That might change later on. What else do you notice? Verses 10 to 14 is where you get that uh, unexpected geographical digression about where the rivers flow. What can we say about that in reference to the tree of life? Is it, I don't know, I might be wrong, but is it possible that that's where the rivers start to separate out and go in different directions? The river, in verse 10, you see a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And mm-hmm. there it divided and became four rivers. So it splits into multiple rivers, multiple streams inside the garden. Rises in Eden uh, as a spring, flows downhill into the garden, because that rivers flow downhill, splits in the garden, and then flows to the other lands. Mm-hmm. So it is both, you could say that it is one characteristic of the tree of life is that it is near river. Or even more, if you want to be more precise, it is near rivers. Plural. All right, what else do you see? What is its altitude? I've been talking about Eden as a mountain, which we are going to go into more detail on that in the following two, our last two sessions, which are going to be about mountains in the Bible. Uh, But I think there's reasons to, to picture Eden as a mountain. And that is that connection will become much more stronger as we look at where else this tree pops up. It is at, at the top of lots of different mountains throughout the Bible. We see this tree, echoes of this tree appear. So it's next to a river or rivers. It is at the center of the garden. It's next to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that somehow um, being in the presence of the tree of life was also to be in the presence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there was Adam and Eve had this dual experience of, this is a really special tree that we need to eat. That other tree is right there and we need to not eat from it. It gives you eternal life. 
in some fashion, whatever that means. Uh, do we know anything about its leaves yet? The leaves aren't mentioned, but let's, let's just table this to table that thought. Well, I wonder what the tree of life's leaves were like. We know something about its fruit that eating it granted some next life that was beyond the, the life that Adam and Eve already had, which was existence, but there was a kind of extra life somehow that the Bible will later call eternal life. What do we know anything yet about its, its luminosity? How bright was it? Not, its color isn't mentioned. There's no mention of its brightness here. Um, but I just also want to just table that. Just add, let that question sit on the table here between us. What, anything about its leaves? Anything about, was it on fire? That's uh, another question that will, later passages will pose us. Was the tree of life on fire? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we've already said it's, it's also, it's somehow physically near the tree of life. And to be in the presence of the tree of life was also to be in the presence of this other tree. And so it, it becomes this kind of archetype of temptation throughout the Bible. The, the patterns, the, the characteristics of Genesis 3 are also replayed. Anytime anyone is tempted, they, they see it, they see that it's good. Um, useful, they take it and they eat it and then they change. And somehow life inhabits the tree of life, but dying inhabits the, the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil, that if they, if they eat of the fruit of one, they live. If they eat of the fruit of the other, they die, which they of course do. And so they're, they're sent out. They don't die immediately. Um, but they are immediately changed. They realize they're naked. They make a covering for themselves of leaves. They hide from God. Some scholars have wondered if they're hiding in the branches of the tree that they just ate from. We're going to move on to Psalm 1, but any any other thoughts on Genesis 2? We're just trying to paint a picture, get, get all the, the colors of the Tree of Life palette. Okay, we're going to go to Psalm 1. This is skipping ahead. We're passing, skipping over a lot of the Old Testament. We're about to go back and hit some of those, those points. But I just want to sit here for just a second to point out a couple things. And one of them being what later biblical writers will do with this idea of the tree of life as it develops. So we're just going to read verses 1 through 3. This is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Why am I talking about this in a discussion about the tree of life? What do you think? 
Well, that certainly shares some characteristics if it's planted by streams of water and then the leaf not withering would be new information. Although one had to wonder even in the Genesis passage, if it was an evergreen or not. Hmm. Was there something in the Genesis passage that made you wonder if it was an evergreen? Well, if the fruit of something causes life to carry on, it would be ironic if the tree that bore that fruit had series of or a season of death or mm. stagnation. That's an interesting insight. It's a really good thought. Yeah, it's specifically not not mentioned in the in Genesis two, but at a certain point, it gets tacked on. Le- there's something about leaves. There's something about fruit. Um, these leaves seem to have some kind of beyond normal properties, supernatural. For this one, it it never withers. Uh, in other passages, other miraculous things will be the result of the leaves. So Emily, I, yeah, I think you're right. So she noticed that it's planted by streams of water, which is, it's interesting that that's plural. It yields, its fruit is mentioned, yields its fruit in season. So there, there's a sense of unfailing fruit. The fruit is always ready and the leaves are mentioned. So I just want to bring that up as an example of ways that this this idea of the tree of life is kind of in, in the imaginative hopper for biblical writers. And then they'll, they'll reach back and draw from it um, to bring it forward into the, into the further points that they're making. So what is, what is the point the psalmist is making here? Why is he, what's he saying is actually happening? We become a tree of life if we follow God's instructions. You become a tree of life. Or kind of like it. Yes, that that is such an interesting observation. This is, it's evoking, the psalm is evoking the tree of life, but it's not saying what you might expect it to say, which is the man who delights in the law of the Lord gets to eat from the, the tree of life and live forever. It's saying he is like the tree. So the Delighting in the the law and the way of the Lord makes you into the tree. Isn't that interesting? And then what what happens? So if you are the tree, it's your fruit that comes in season and your leaf that doesn't wither. And you're planted by streams of water like the tree was in Eden, the water of the, the river of life. So you see what they're doing with that. I, I just, I think this is so clever and such a good example of the way biblical writers, they pick things up, but when they plop it down, it isn't just like a cookie cutter thing. They're, they're working with the image and spinning it and sometimes reversing it. All right, let's, let's go back a bit and talk about some of the things that we skipped over. So we have a tree next to rivers that the the people made in the image of God are invited toward on a high place, which is a place where meetings, the people meet with God. As you see in Genesis 3, after they eat the fruit, 
from the other tree, God walks up. So what are some other trees and high places in the Old Testament? We're going to camp out a little bit here. Let's brainstorm some other trees and high places where people meet with God. What about the um, burning bush? The burning bush. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the burning bush. You have Moses there. He's, um, as a young boy, was saved by an ark on a river and then picked up in Pharaoh's household. Uh, He grows up, he murders someone, he flees, and he's a shepherd. So there's uh, Moses' life tours the gamut of major biblical themes. And here, he's when he has this burning bush experience, he's out in the desert. Uh, he's chasing down a lost sheep or a lost goat. And he turns aside on this mountain because he sees something strange. He sees a bush in English uh, that is on fire, but it's not burning. And also this, um, let's see, let's just do a little... A little step Bible. Here we are. So this bush is a word that just appears here in reference to um, a bush or a tree. And also, I should mention that in Hebrew, the we have lots of separate words for tree. In English, a tree is just a tree. In Hebrew, a tree could be a bush, a bush could be a tree, a branch could be a tree. Um, yeah, there's a whole range of plantness that just gets called tree. So there is a sense in which this, this is a tree, this, or it would be understood of as a tree. But the word bush is seneh. So the, it's this seneh tree. And this mountain, the, the name of this, this word used to Talk about a tree doesn't happen elsewhere in the Bible, but the mountain now takes the name for the tree when we see it later on. So this is Mount Sinai or Horeb is it kind of has a dual name. It's Horeb or Sinai named for this tree that Moses sees. So the Lord speaks to him out of the midst of this tree, which is on fire, but it is not consumed. So in verse Exodus 3, 2, the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. What happens? We've got a man called to approach a tree on fire. What happens? What do you make of verse 5? Then he said, this is God, do not come near, take off your sandal, take your sandals off your feet for the place you're standing is holy ground. What's going on there? It's a tree he cannot approach um, because the place itself is holy. Mm. Yes, he's Moses is forbidden from approaching which should be ringing some exile bells. Uh, Humanity has been, if this is a kind of echo of the tree of life, we have been barred from access to it. There is a, there's a problem. 
And this, if that is the case, then the tree of life, there was also this, there was holiness to it. Uh, there was something about God's holiness that the tree was taking part, part in, uh, which I think the narrative in Genesis 2 is interacting with in putting it at the center of the garden. We've talked in previous weeks about how the garden, the temple is kind of a, an overlay of the garden. So that the closer you get to the center of the temple, the more and more holy it becomes. So here you, ha- here you have Moses who's invited toward the bush and then told to stop because the, the holiness factor has increased beyond his ability to approach. There's so much, all of these trees on high places, we could really dive into them, but we're just, we're just going to skim along the surface and try to connect as many dots as possible. So other trees on high places in the Old Testament specifically. I was thinking there had to be an olive tree on a high mountain somewhere after the flood for the dove to be able to find a branch and bring back to the ark. Mm-hmm. What's going on with the flood? So we've got um, things are getting bad um, in Genesis up to Genesis after Genesis three, three, four and five just gets worse and worse. Genesis six is a kind of climax uh, we find out about the Nephilim, where something between the sons of God and the, and the daughters of men happens. And these creatures, given the title Nephilim, are, are in the land. And then the flood. Uh, we meet Noah. And Noah is called to build a ship uh, out of trees. So the flood comes. And just going back to some of the other images we've explored over the previous weeks. This is the flood is the reversal of Genesis one. So in Genesis one, God parted the waters and created the dry land. And in the narrative of the flood, God summons the the waters below back up on top of the land and opens the windows in the, the waters above so that they come down too. So God is bringing back the chaos waters. And they are the agent of his judgment, except for uh, Noah's family and some animals that are saved in a tree, uh, in, in, a, in an ark made of eights, wood. Uh, so at the end of the flood, he's floating along for 40 days and lands. Where does he land? Not in a valley. He lands at the top of a mountain. So you've got this tree, this ark made of wood at the top of a mountain. He gets out and builds an altar, presumably out of the ark, you know, and sacrifices to God. So he, Noah meets with God in, the, in a tree context at the top of the mountain. And just to pursue the narrative a little bit further, uh, he then is faced, he then has a, a fall in the garden that he makes. He grows a vineyard grows, makes wine. Uh, so there is a, it's a fruit related fall in a garden followed by an exile of one of his sons. So this, um, the cleansing that the flood achieved was not a deep enough cleansing yet. So the story of the flood replays and Noah was not a good enough savior yet. Even though he had this saving experience with a tree. 
other trees on high places. Abraham, um, yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Abraham and Abraham and Isaac. So here's Abraham with his promised son, who whom he has waited for for so long. And he's sitting in, in just before Genesis 22. Abraham is sitting where? He's sitting under a tree. And God says, go take your beloved son up to where? That mountain up there. The mountain I'll show you. And it's Mount Moriah, which is the future site of the temple we discover later. So God tells Abraham to bring his son up a mountain uh, and... Isaac, Abraham, the father, lays the wood for the sacrifice on, not on the donkey, but on the back of his son. And Isaac asks, um, dad, where's, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's answer is, God will provide the sacrifice, which of course he does, uh, but not before Abraham has raised his hand to strike his son down in obedience to God, thinking that he, that he, he would be stopped or that his God would give him his son back. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11 gives a little insight into what was going on in, in Abraham's mind. And Abraham tells the servant, we'll both be back when they leave before they go up the, up the mountain. So you have this moment at the future side of the temple where a, a man is asked to sacrifice his son uh, carries the wood on his back up the mountain and then is stopped. So just as Noah was not uh, the true, the true obedient savior, neither is Abraham. The sacrifice is of Isaac is stopped. And then they get, they get a, a goat, a goat or a, a lamb. I can't remember a ram. Other trees on high places in the old Testament. Can I just say that the the um, the ram was stuck in a tree, wasn't he? Yes, that's right. Yeah, stuck in some brambles. From a, with thorns, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that's an idle detail either. Okay. Further further thoughts. We're we're only going to do a couple more of these. Trees on high places. Is there something going on when Elijah faces the prophets of Baal with all the water and the wood? Mm. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's Mount Carmel. And Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal. And there is, there are altars built. And Elijah, after the prophets of Baal fail to call down fire, Elijah has water poured on his altar and then prays that the Lord would consume the sacrifice in fire. And it does. So again, you've got the mountains, you've got a pile of wood on fire. This time it does burn. What else? He then flees to Horeb. He then flees to Horeb Mm -hmm. and has a meeting uh, with God on the mountain where Moses met God. Mm Mm-hmm. 
There's just a few others I'm going to fly through quickly. In 2 Samuel 7, the Ark of the Covenant moves to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, and David uh, sets up his, uh, the capital of his kingdom there. And his son Solomon builds a temple that is dressed up to look like the Garden of Eden, which we talked about last time. So you've got a, a reenactment of the, the hot spot of God's presence in this progressively more and more holy place that is designed to look, look and feel like Eden, covered in wood that is covered in gold. Throughout Judges and Kings, before that, just going back a little bit, the people of Israel are always worshiping uh, in Judges and, and Kings uh, other gods at, at high places. So in, in first and second Kings, you, when you see a good King, they tear down the altars at the high places. And this is, uh, these are often worshiping sacred trees. Uh, there was a Canaanite goddess Asherah who was portrayed as a tree. So they'd have these trees in high places and they'd worship them as a God. And the, the good Kings of Israel would tear them all down. And the bad Kings would let the people start building them again. So there is this notion fixed in their minds that, if you want to meet with God, go up to a mountain, to the tree, to the sacred tree. In Isaiah 5, the prophet calls Israel a vineyard planted on a fertile hill that kind of goes rancid. Um, Proverbs 3, wisdom is like a tree of life to those who take hold of her. In Ezekiel 47, we talked about this a couple weeks ago as well. The, Ezekiel is given a, a tour of the cosmic temple by an angel. And we learn in 47.12 on the banks, so there's, it's this, um, that Ezekiel 47 is a vision of the temple, and there's a river flowing out of the threshold of the temple that gets deeper and deeper uh, the further it goes. And any salt water that it touches, it flows into the Dead Sea and makes it fresh water. And picking up the story in Ezekiel 47.12, on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. It sounds like Genesis, it sounds like Eden. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. So we've got unwithering leaves and unfailing fruit. But they will bear fresh fruit every month. So not only does the fruit, is it, does it not fail every year, but it bears fruit every month. Because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. So these trees are planted next to this supernatural water, flowing from the hot spot, hot spot of God. Uh, from the temple, they have unwithering leaves and unfailing fruit. And the last bit, their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So not only do the leaves never wither, but you can, uh, they have healing properties. So what is it about this, this tree that's so special? We, uh, we're going to go on to the New Testament, but let's just pause for just a, a second for questions. Thoughts on these trees in high places, the ways that the Old Testament writers um, riff on this Genesis 2 theme. We'll have some time for questions at the end. Andy, can I do a brief devil's advocate question? Yeah, sure. As long as you also know the answer. 
I, well, I might have a different one from you, but um, aren't they just writing about trees? I mean, come on, trees are a common thing. Are we really supposed to be seeing a, a, such a intentional theme all the way through here? Isn't it? Trees are everywhere. Mm. Isn't it just trees? That's an excellent devil's advocate question. I, I think it. I think it is trees. I think people were worshiping at trees on mountains in Judges and in Kings. Uh, I think it is, in a sense, historically accurate. However, uh, that if we find a like a literal or historical meaning, that doesn't mean the meaning has been exhausted. So it, it taps into this idea that trees on high places were where you could meet with God. Um, however, the Bible is, it isn't just a, a literal, literal historical account as we might expect um, to encounter today. It's, it's the work of people who are working in a tradition whose images and ideas about God have been shaped by things that were written previous to their own writings. Um, so yeah, I think they are picking up things and working with them in new ways, just like we talked about with Psalm 1. Uh, and Psalm 1 is a good example, or a place to take that question. It is, it could be just a metaphor, just a, a surface level metaphor. Read, or if you dwell and delight yourself on the Torah and live in God's ways, you will live the kind of life that uh, can be more metaphorically compared to a, a tree that's well watered. You know, you, you will thrive. It, it might just be saying you will thrive. But if we point that out, if, if we make that connection, it doesn't mean the meaning is exhausted because the people or the person who wrote Psalm 1 uh, had read Genesis 2 and had meditated on it. And Genesis 2 had been in the founding documents of their in, entire culture. And so there, the idea of the tree of life, it, it's, it's more than... I think it's entirely, entirely fair game to say it's more than just a tree. It would have been a handy, um, dense, weighty image to, to plop down in a poem to convey the kind of thing that is being conveyed in that song. Mm-hmm. It's not just you'll thrive, but you, you will become a channel and a conduit for the life of God in the world. That your fruit will be unfailing. Thank you. Yes, you've, thank you. you've convinced me. Okay. <laughs> the New Testament really drives that point home because it stops talking about actual trees, in a sense. Uh, it, yeah. t- it, it takes the idea and plops it down into um, what the idea has always meant. Namely, in John 15. So let's go to John 15. It's a great, if you're going for the tree of life in the New Testament, Jesus calling himself the true vine is a good place to start. Um, remember, in, in the Hebrew mindset, tree was a wide category. So for us, for us, a tree is very different than a vine. But for them, it's, it's more of a kind of all-embracing category. So the, the, it is a vine, though, because in this sense, it, it bears vine fruit. So John writes... Jesus saying, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. 
Already, if you're clean, you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in, I in him, he is that that who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And, and it goes on. But I want to just sit here for a little bit. What, did, what do you notice? Does it seem like a stretch that I'm saying this belongs in the, in the conversation about the tree of life? What are your thoughts? The theme of nourishment um, comes is present in a big way, just as the um, tree in Psalm 1 is nourished by the streams of water. Um, mm-hmm. The branch is nourished by the vine. Yes. Yeah, nourishment. This tree has life-giving properties, so much so that if you separate yourself from it, you die. But if you don't separate yourself from it, if you abide in it, you will live you'll grow and you'll bear fruit and not only fruit but it's it's um there's kind of a a super fruit an unfailing fruit Uh, i don't know if you guys have ever spent time with grapevines but they the branch the branch is the the vine is the woody part and the branches are the little green things that grow up uh, every season and then the, the vine dresser cuts them off and the, the wood the old vine stays so it's the thing that that the life comes from so jesus is saying i'm i'm the vine i'm the old the old uh wood bit and you grow you know like a tender shoot every season and if to do if the branches who are not connected to the ground they don't have life in themselves are separated from the vine they just die uh, so it, he's really doing a lot with the actual way that vines work. Uh, but he's saying more than that as well. And the metaphor here, I, I do think it is in conversation with Genesis 2, but the metaphor has changed. Again, just like Psalm 1, it's not eating the fruit, but becoming the tree. So you, Jesus is saying, I'm the vine. I'm, I'm the thing that ha- I have life in myself and I give life to, to you but you have to join me. You have to abide in me and I will abide in you. Just like a branch is, is grows straight up out of uh, the vine and it is part of the vine. And that is how the fruit comes. So it, 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 Jesus is painting this picture of what was supposed to happen. I think in, in the garden had they chosen to abide in the tree of the fruit of the tree of life, rather than taking the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, mm-hmm. that there is this continuous life giving, sustaining feeding that happens on, not on, not on grapevine, you know, not even on the tree of life, but the thing that the, the source of life that those images are pointing towards on the life of God. Jesus is saying, plug into me, let me live in you, and you live in me, and you will bear much fruit. Jesus, Jesus and fruit, 
trees are all over his parables. And we looked at, at, at garden and tree metaphors a little bit last time. So I won't go over those again. But you do get images that the, this, the church that Jesus creates, that he plants, is, uh, is something that is presiding over a garden, uh, that is watering a garden and har- harvesting fruit and bearing fruit in itself. Think about um, Genesis 5, the fruit of the spirit, that we people are things that the, as we're connected to the, the life of God, we bear the fruit of the spirit, which isn't grapes, but it's love, joy, peace, kindness, all, all that stuff. Uh, the, the love of God and the life of God are manifested in us, in our choices, in our lives, in the effect we have in our places and our communities. That's getting a bit into um, what was inspiring last time when we talked about uh, planting Eden in Babylon. So what is, if you take all this, the imagery is nice, but what does it actually mean? It means the life of God manifested in the people of God in ways that other people can then come eat and be nourished by and be invited into. Can I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, uh, So at first in the garden, we eat from the tree of life, but but they were like, they they were separate from the tree of life. But then um, you said we become a tree, but then, in in the vine, we actually are uh, we grow out of this tree. So we we don't become our own separate tree. We become part of the tree of life itself. Is it correct? Yeah, I think that's where the images are going. Okay, it's like it keeps getting more close. <laughs> it keeps getting more close. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but the tree. Been... Go ahead. No. No, you go ahead. I was just going to say the tree is not a tree. Like it's, it's not about the tree. The, tr- the discussion about the tree of life in the Bible is not about the tree. It's about, it's about the life. That's the, the, the most important part about the tree of life wasn't the tree. It's the life and where the life comes from. You know, I think we, the Bible invites us always into more sophistication. And, and as you go deeper and deeper down, uh, people who want like simple, clear cut, life hacks will become more confused. Um, and, and the Bible kind of invites you into that through the confusion. You say, hang on now is, am I supposed to eat from the tree or am I, am I going to become the tree? Who wrote this book? And the answer <laughs> is yes. Uh, and then you think about it and five years pass and you keep thinking about it and you think, oh, I see I, I get a glimpse of what's really going on here. I always get, I, I never know how to respond to people who ask me if they should read, if I take the Bible literally. And I just kind of want to say, well, how much time do you have? Let's, we need to have a conversation about this. Um, are you asking, do I think the Bible is true and you know, author, the authoritative word of God? Yes. But if I want to, if I come to the reading of the Bible with this, the hammer of literalism, I'll end up smashing a lot of the things God made and missing a lot of the meaning. Um, because there is a, there's a deeper sense of 
the word sophistication is coming to mind, but it doesn't quite, that's not quite what I'm reaching for. Um, nuance or sensitivity or beauty or depth or richness in all these images that you find when you, when you, you find best when you let them resonate in their strangeness next to each other for a long time and then see what the life of God does with them in you. That's not really what you're asking about. That was just a bit of a rant about literalism. Which is fine. But I I know my own mind, to me, to have the tree picture, even though whether it is like, it's almost easier for me to picture it as a tree, a, a, a picture. I don't know if I've got autism or something, but I think in pictures very well. And if you give me a picture, it's like a small container and then I don't have to remember all the facts about it because I just think of what a tree is. And then it, it's like a way to remember all the beauty in the picture. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, and all I was going to add was the, um, that thing of the Bible project. They, I don't know why this stuck with me about barrenness. They said that barrenness was like you're cut off from the root, you know, the barren women. And, so, like in the Old Testament, producing fruit was important, but this is this is so beautiful, the oneness of, like, we actually do become part of the very tree of life, like the bride, like all the pictures merge together. You got it. Now I see why uh, Revelation is so, you got the bride, you got the city, you got the tree, you got the building, you got, the, you know, you got the, you got everything, the jewels, you got the garden. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very beautiful. Yeah. And you should be picturing a tree because it's pictured oh. that it's a tree. That is, that's the image God chose to convey his meanings. Um, but also it's not about the tree, but it is, but it, it, it's, it's also not. <laughs> it's, it's God's meanings. He's conveying with this very rich and varied image of a tree. So it's not that we, you just need to get rid of the tree and look beyond it, but to meditate on the tree, like Psalm 1. And it's just this Psalm 1 stuff. Uh, delight yourself in the law of the Lord, and then become like this tree, and delight yourself in, in what God is, in God's meanings, as the tree delights itself in, in the river, and in the soil, and in the sun. I think that's all there in Psalm 1 as well, like the, the way the means that a tree finds its sustenance is also the way that we should find our sustenance in God's meanings. Very quick. It's, I I would think like in creation with Romans one, it's like, we're not to worship nature, but every part of nature points to God in some way. And so God has created the tree to point to him. So we can think of a tree, but the tree isn't saying worship me. The tree is saying, I'm like God in this way or, or something, but I, I see what you're saying. Thank you. Yeah. I think that's right on. About the fig tree, the withered fig, fig tree. Oh, Bill, you asked about the fig tree. <laughs> I zoomed by the fig tree so fast. I didn't even mention it. The important thing is not the tree. It's the figs. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's very, let's quickly talk about this odd fig tree. Um, and then we're going to, we, we can't miss the crucifixion. So we're going to come back oh, to the crucifixion. Gosh, yes. uh, 
Jesus comes in to, after the triumphal entry, uh, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, looks around and leaves. Um, He goes to the temple and walks out. The next day, he and his disciples are walking in to Jerusalem and he sees this fig tree that is not, it has no fruit on it for it was not the season for fruit. The text says, I think it's Mark. Um, Mm -hmm. And then he curses on it and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then he goes in to the temple, turns over the, the money changers temples and or tables and drives, drives everyone out. And he says two things. He says, You're, my house was to be a, a, a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And that's a quotation from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7, I think. Double check me on that. Uh, Jeremiah 7, I think I've talked about in previous weeks, but I'm, I'll just re- review it in case I haven't. Um, when we, when, especially in the New Testament, when an Old Testament passage is quoted, the quote is not, does not refer only to the meaning of like the, the sentence itself. So the, the writer, the New Testament writer is not, scooping up the meaning contained in the sentence and plopping it down in, in their New Testament document. They're scooping up with a, you know, they take a big swipe of the whole chapter, the whole um, context of this sentence. And then the sentence is used to signify the context of the remaining, of, of its surroundings. It's, it's called metalepsis is, is a, the fancy word that scholars used to talk about this. This is coming from a guy named Richard Hayes is where I found it. Uh, so Hayes said, uh, if, you, if you read the quotes metaleptically, that urges you to find the, the passage where it's being quoted and go back and read the whole context. And that mm. context is being quoted, not the sentence. Mm. So the context in Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7 is very important for understanding the significance of Jesus cleansing the temple and also the whole fig tree thing, uh, because fig trees are mentioned in Jeremiah 8. I'm, I'm pulling this out of, out of memory, so double check on my, my numbers. Uh, in Jeremiah 7, the priests have run, run amok in the temple, and the prophet comes and judges them for what they've done to the place. And part of the speech of judgment pulls on this, this metaphor of fig tree. Uh, and so when he goes out, after he cleanses the temple, after he pronounces these, um, these damning prophecies from the Old Testament prophets, which everyone would have recognized, he goes out and, they ask, and the fig tree has withered. And they, his disciples ask him, what's going on here? And then he in an, in an odd change of topic, seemingly odd change of topic says, uh, if you, if you have enough faith, you can say to this mountain, be turned over into the sea and, and it will happen. And it's one of the stranger moments in the gospels. Um, because that, that, it, that what he's saying doesn't work. You can pray that God would tip over a mountain and, most people do not have an experience of that prayer being answered. So that's the, that's the kind of surface level, literal meaning to that. Uh, and I know plenty of people who have read that and thought, oh, God, either God isn't real or God doesn't love me because 
there it is. I, I read, I did what he said. I prayed that this very specific thing would happen and it didn't happen. I must not have enough faith. But if you can scratch below the surface, if you learn to read the gospel as, as they're meant to be, as, as the meaning is meant to be extracted from them, and that being in, in dialogue with all the previous scriptures, then some, you can see other things are going on here. Namely, um, well, one, this image of mountains turning over into the sea is in dialogue with Psalm 46, where the image is also found. And it's in dialogue with um, Genesis 1. So he's saying if it's, it's an image of uncreation, it's the reversal of creation, the mountain rises up out of the chaotic sea. So read the passage in Mark where he says that. Go back and read Jeremiah 7, Isaiah 56, and Psalm 46, and then think about it for, for a while. And one more thing to throw into that is, um, okay, a couple more things. This is why I wanted to skip over it. Uh, the, this mountain, when Jesus says, if you, if you can say to this mountain, I don't think that means, oh, any old mountain. I think he means this mountain. And which mountain is this mountain? Anybody? The temple? The temple. <laughs> yeah, the, the mountain he just got back from overturning. Uh, so put that oh. in your put that in your, your meditation pot and stir it around a little bit. If you say to this mountain, okay, what does it mean? What what is he saying? On what trajectory is he putting the church in um, as they pursue justice, as he is pursuing justice and creating rightness in the world as, as he just demonstrated, facing down the corruptions, the power, powers that be have wrought in the temple. Also, the sea being chaos, um, the mountain will be turned into will be cast into into the the waters of chaos in a way in just a few years when the romans come in and they level the whole thing so in a way if his disciples pray for that they are going to see it within their lifetime (laughs) Mm. yeah and that is that comment is right in line with the way that there's a whole theme or trajectory of um God's enemy nations being portrayed as raging waters or many waters or rushing waters or flood. Uh, so that, yeah, there's this sense that Rome being portrayed as a chaotic sea is, is right in line with the way other empires have been portrayed as well. Last thing on this, and then we are going to go to the crucifixion. Um, there's a whole trajectory of prophetic speech acts um, so it's it's not only saying things, but it's saying things and doing something like building a little model of Jerusalem and destroying it or laying on your side for however many days. You know, the Old Testament prophets, God has asked them, Old Testament prophets to do odd things so that the things themselves, the, these actions would become metaphors of larger meanings playing out. And I think that's also going on with this fig. So this you get fig. Fig tree, um, Jesus confronts the temple fig tree. So it's, it's, it's a little, it's a microcosm of what 
he has just done in the temple. And Micah 4. Go read Micah 4 about fig trees. The, it, it's, a, it's a complicated but rich knot of things going on in that Mark passage. We're going to go on to the crucifixion. The gospel writers bring forward details about the crucifixion that should be ringing bells about trees in high places if you've been paying attention to the storyline of the Old Testament. So Jesus, Jesus doesn't die on a mountain, but he does die on a hill uh, near the Temple Mount. So he's outside of, of the camp, in, in a sense, at a place called Golgotha. And Golgotha was a rock formation that took the shape of a skull uh, because of quarrying activity. So it's, it was this odd place where they did their crucifixions. So in, at the end of the Gospels, you have the Son of God who is carrying the wood of his sacrifice up a hill to die. Does that remind you of anything? Isaac, when he carries the wood with Abraham's sacrifice. Yes, yes. Yep, the son has the wood on his back, but Isaac asked, where will the sacrifice come from? And Jesus is not asking that. He just confronted that question. He knows his mission and just had his experience in Gethsemane the night before, another garden facing temptation. Uh, in, in the context of wine, He's saying, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but no, I, I will drink it. I'll do your will. So unlike Isaac, Jesus is certain of where the sacrifice will come from. And he won't, also unlike Isaac, won't be spared. Uh, he's the beloved son that will, will be the lamb who is, who is sacrificed. So Jesus also died, not only does he die on a hill, he dies on a tree. Later, New Testament writers call uh, the cross a tree first peter in first peter 224 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed so there's and paul does it too in galatians 3 and there's this sense where after the crucifixion the tree becomes shorthand for the cross we don't call it that now we call it the cross uh, but the New, the other New Testament writers often did. And also notice there's this, um, there are three trees on the top of the hillside. So Jesus dies between two trees. And I don't think that is accidental too. I, I don't think we just have to say that's a historical coincidence and we need, we need draw no connections to Adam and Eve standing there between two trees. Um, on, on one is life, on the other is death. And Jesus says to the thief on the cross who, who chooses him, who chooses the tree of life, hanging on the tree that is killing him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So there is this sense that when Jesus died, when, when, uh, when Jesus, who, who is life in himself, dies for others, uh, for the world, it is the end of the exile. And that he's that is signified in his response to the thief when he says today you'll be with me in paradise. So there is, and, and then uh, 
most of the gospels immediately cut after Jesus dies, immediately cut to these strange things that start happening all over Jerusalem. One being that the temple, uh, the, the curtain that separates the most holy place in the temple from the holy place and the rest of the temple and the rest of creation is torn, torn in half. So there's this sense that, uh, yeah, I, I think I think we're meant to understand that the exile is over, that access to the tree of life is is now on offer uh, in Christ, that if we abide in him, we can feed continuously on on his life giving presence and then also bear life giving fruit ourselves. We've gone too long. So let me just, I want to have a little bit of time for questions at the end, but let me just lightly touch on Revelation 22. <clears throat> Revelation 22, one says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And you should be thinking of Ezekiel 47, uh, the, the river of life that makes the salty water fresh flowing out of the, through the city, out of the doorway of the temple. So back to Revelation 22. Also on either side of the river, of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of nation, of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. So that's the first three verses of Revelation 22. And you've got, all, all of these hints and pieces of the picture of the tree of life that have been coming together over the course of scripture are here. Um, clear as crystal, <clears throat> the leaves that heal, the fruit that is unfailing. Um, the river of life is there. We have by no means exhausted the image of the tree of life, but hopefully I've given you some some food for thought, something to sink your roots down into. Tree of life pond there. Sorry. Been waiting for it. Yeah. What should we talk about now? Can we talk about Psalm 80 a bit? And the um, Israel being described as the vine that comes out of Egypt. Um, and its walls broken down in the exile. I was just thinking about that in relation to um, the vine and the branches. Um, mm. Israel in Psalm 80 being described as kind of this corporate entity. All the people are a vine, um, and they wither. Their walls are broken down in exile. Mm. But then the vine comes back um, in Jesus. And yeah, offers, offers life. Um, and seeing, it's very helpful to see the life as the thing rather than the tree, because then you're able to take these agrarian images and see that they're all building up to the same, um, or they're all showing forth this deep reality of um, life and nourishment and all that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, just let me just read that. We don't have to comment on it very much more than what you already did, but I think having these tree of life thoughts in our head, I think we'll we'll be better equipped to begin to ruminate on this. This is Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt, 
you drove out the nations and planted it. And that could be understood as very, very literally what happened with Israel. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. Hmm. wonder what's going on there. Uh, suddenly this vine is bigger than the mountains. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. And it, it goes on. It's interesting that it's the river. Some There's a note on Step Bible that says that is the Euphrates. The Euphrates is often called the river. But I wonder if given... Given all of all of our discussion about the river of life, where it it has to be limited to that kind of a geographical understanding, it's definitely there's an Eden thing going on there. I think. Mm. Yeah. This is what happens once you get some of these fundamental Genesis images in your head and kind of keep them keep them rolling around. You're you're reading the the dense material that shaped then shaped the later the, the writers of the rest of the bible um so you're kind of getting their their source material in a sense um it, only in the sense that the 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 hebrew imagination was so so richly stocked from genesis from the pentateuch but also even even in a special way from the very beginning of genesis so they keep coming up over and over again. You're, you find yourself reading a psalm, and suddenly you think, oh, my goodness, this is a, there's a Genesis thing going on here. I was also thinking about the shoot will come up from the branch of Jesse, the kind of Advent time readings we were doing this year as well. Yep. The Jesse tree. Yeah. Yeah, the Bible Project has, uh, I think it's 10 episodes on their podcast on the Tree of Life, and they talk about that uh, to a good degree. I've kind of taken a parallel path that diverges in, in certain moments. But if, if you want to get more on the Tree of Life, the Bible Projects podcast goes into greater depth. Another a beautiful, well, two, two things. One was I always think of Jesus going in like with the cherubim, with the, um, you know, the cherubim were um, at the gate with swords. I almost feel like he, he went, he with his own body, you know, with that curtain, simply, you know, opened the way of the tree of life for us, like as yeah, like the, the he opened it and then he, or I don't know if he planted himself here, but I don't know. I just always that's because the uh, temple imagery had the cherubim, you know, on the curtain. The other thing was the vine, the song of my beloved, the Isaiah five. That mm. is, I didn't realize that was a song. But that and then the parable of the wicked tenants, if you pair those two things up, that is absolutely beautiful uh, uh, to mm. see. And they're both trees and vines. And mm-hmm. what the what they did is they killed and killed, you know, beat up and killed and then killed him. And um, but it's all with trees. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they send the servants which we could understand to be the, the prophets and they beat and right. kill them. And then the, the vine, the vineyard owner thinks uh, they'll respect my son. And so then you see this, if Jesus's listeners were following along with what he was really saying, it's a, it's a prediction of his own, of how he's going to die uh, because they, they don't respect his, the father's son. They put the father's son to death. 
and it, it's like they killed him on the, his own tree that he created in in Isaiah five. Mm. Like, in other words, they're using his own vineyard to kill him. Yeah, it's it's such a masterful parable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What else? Is there a sort of a sense of what happens with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, like through the story? Like, does it just go away or um, like in the end of the story, is there, is it dealt with in some other way? I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. Yeah. The, the tree of life appears um, very either by name or by characteristic uh, over and over throughout the Bible. As we've just seen, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil doesn't appear directly uh, in the Bible projects series on this. They they argue that from now on, these trees, the tree of temptation is represented by people. So you see you see people later on in these moments of temptation where they they have the, the way of life on the one side and the way of anti-life on the other, and they, they choose one or the other. They pass the test or they fail the test. So it, it becomes, it kind of transforms constantly in every temptation moment. But we are to understand that it is, it's that archetypal first temptation being played out over and over again. It's not between two trees anymore. It's between, I don't know, David sees a, a woman bathing while he's on the roof and he has a decision to make. Or... Um, Gosh, Abraham has a decision to make about what to do. Should I use my slave woman to hasten this promised child or should I continue to wait? So the the characters of the Bible are put in these the same situation with the a temptation that has different objects. So in the sense the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not there anymore. In the other sense it it is as it transforms into different things. That's the argument they make. Rob, did you want to say something? Um, well, now I was thinking about it's kind of a b- between kind of the progeny of of the serpent versus the progeny of the woman as well, kind of articulate. But I keep thinking of different things now. Like and now I'm thinking of um, Aaron's rod uh, bore almonds. Uh, it budded. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, that that also was in the Ark of the mm-hmm. Covenant. So. Um, I'm thinking of Moses when he held the pole with the serpent. I don't know if, if there's an indication that that pole was of a tree. I would imagine it would. I know the serpent was bronze, mm. but that's always a that's always a bit of a shroud of mystery mm. over the serpent and how Jesus, of course, is, was the one lifted up on a pole um, mm-hmm. uh, to to save people who would look upon him, you know, follow him. So yeah, it's just just all these, <laughs> you know, connections are just just really really firing off i don't know if you have any any there's trees everywhere yeah once once you realize oh a tree can be a lot of things it really opens up uh what's going on right after the israelites pass through the red sea they come to this bitter they're out in the wilderness and they come to this bitter pool that is undrinkable and they say ah we're you know we why did you bring us out here they it was the first of the grumbling narratives and Moses takes a, a tree and eats the same word and throws it in to this pool and it becomes drinkable. So it's just 
it's just this re- recurrent, like you have a wilderness and it needs some water and this tree will bring life to the people if it goes into the water for some reason. So it's this kind of, it's a, it's a remix of all the same Eden stuff that just gets remixed and remixed. And so you see the tree and you think, okay, what's, what's going on here? Is this just a random thing that happened? Is it unconnected to the other, other things that have happened or are, do the meanings stack on top of one another and deepen one another? I, I definitely think that it's the latter. I just yeah, remember- even, the, even the water there. Oh, sorry. This went, went okay. from bitter to sweet. So go, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Was I was that thinking Lauren? when you were, yeah, oh, sorry. It, it just all the firing. I was thinking of Hagar when she, I think she was under a tree. You're saying the appearances of God. I think that was the first theophany or whatever. And then I think Samson's parents, I think that that was also under a tree, but I might be wrong. But Hagar, I believe, was under a tree. I think you're right. That's let's see, Genesis. I never thought of that. And I think it's the first actual appearance like of the angel of the Lord. And I believe that she's under a tree. And I think it's when he says, go back to your mistress. Yeah, and the, and water is there too. Her her water runs mm-hmm. out, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Got up with her eyes, and then she saw a well of water, and she went, "Yeah, yeah." So you have a tree, you have this water, um, you have the wilderness, you have God's provision. Mm-hmm. It's like he he likes to be when he's going to come to us. He likes a tree to be there. <laughs> no, certainly in in the Bible that seems to be the case. Seems to be yeah. how the biblical writers are conveying the meanings they have to convey. And this goes on with um, what Philip was saying as well. Are they just trees? And you see that the times they're showing up, you know, are such significant points in redemptive history. You know, the Ark, the, this, you know, kind of the first mentioned covenant, they're pointing pointers back to other covenants before that. But, you know, it, and, and of course, Abraham and, and, you know, going to Ezekiel with this new temple, you know, the culmination of this redemptive history coming to fruition. So these are just really important times where they come up too. Yeah. I think when I started getting into some of this stuff, I was just so shocked and um, awed, awed even and impressed about how much unity there was in, in all of these symbols. It's, it, it's not just a, one thing happening after another, but it's, it's almost like this symphony in which these themes build on each other and build on each other. It's really wonderful. Zacchaeus up a tree too. Zacchaeus up a tree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The Lord comes to him. He's in a tree, hiding in a tree, perhaps just like Adam and Eve when uh, the, the Lord was coming to them in Genesis three. Jesus calls out, invites him mm. instead of exiling this time. Invites himself over to Zacchaeus's house. That's interesting. Invites himself into Zacchaeus's place. I was just thinking about it was Abraham as well and the three visitors by the oaks of Mamre, Mamre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
it's just everywhere. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting how you don't see it until you see it. It's like once once you get the oh look go look for this, then you start to find it. You have to build the the heuristic before you can learn to learn to see what you're learn to see what you're seeing. And I, in in my up church upbringing, there just wasn't this wasn't an element. They the dots the salvation dots got connected, and the the doctrine dots got quite connected, but the it's this layer, the meanings in the images and the unity of, of the Bible, those dots were kind of left unconnected. It's been so good for my faith to have, to be able to connect some of those dots.